everybody, welcome to Naval Gazing, the Valley Indie Podcast. My name is Eugene Driscoll of ValleyIndy.org. It's an online newspaper covering Derby and Sonia and Seymour in Connecticut's lower Naugatuck Valley. This is a cool episode, something a little different. It's a change of pace. It's going to be a joint release with the other podcast I do called Insufferable Bastards, which is more entertainment focused, but I wanted to share it here too because it's something different. You know what I'm saying? I interviewed Brian Volkweiss. He's the CEO of the Nacelle Company. That's a big, fancy Hollywood uh, company. They brought us, if you're a Netflix fan or a Netflix subscriber, you remember the movies that made us? Documentary on Elf, Aliens, Friday the 13th, Home Alone, and the toys that made us, which featured like He-Man stuff, Star Wars stuff. Two really popular shows on Netflix. This guy is the brainchild behind that. He heads up the company that makes those shows, and he directs some of the episodes. So he's got a new one coming out. Actually, it just was released July 12th, 10 p.m., to be precise, on Vice TV. It's called Icons Unearthed, and the first season is focusing on Star Wars. He landed an interview with Marsha Lucas. We talk about that in this interview. And Brian started out as a stand-up comic manager. I'm kind of a comic fan, so second part of the interview goes into that part of his career a little bit. Anyway, I had a really great time talking to him. I hope you have a good time listening. So I'm going to shut up now, and here's the interview. Thank you. Brian Volkweiss is the CEO of the Nacelle Company, which brought us the movies that made us and the toys that made us, two ginormous Netflix shows that everybody loved. He's back with Icons on Earth, a new documentary series on Vice TV. The first bunch of these episodes concentrate on the making of the Star Wars movies, ladies and gentlemen. The first episode of Icons on Earth premiered this week on Vice TV. It was outstanding, by the way, and it was directed by my guest. Welcome to the podcast, Brian. Good to be here. Thank you for the nice words. Oh, no problem. I mean, uh, I, I am a big fan. I'm not just blowing smoke. So that, that first episode, it goes into Star Wars, like I said. So I got a statement, and I'm going to follow it up with a question here. I even wrote down notes for this. I'm a little nervous. I apologize. Oh. <laughs> but I feel like I've already failed in this interview because we're going to be talking about Star Wars. And there's that Star Wars fandom out there, and they make me nervous because I know no matter what I ask you about Star Wars, there's like a million and one other questions that people deep into Star Wars probably have for you. And I'm not going to hit those questions. So there's a pressure just talking about Star Wars at this point in our culture. So I'm wondering, does any of that, this uh, worrying about not living up to the fans' expectations, worry you? How do you deal with that when you approach a documentary like this? Um, I, I mean, listen, I... I I am a fan, you know, and I, I tell you, it's a very interesting time in life to be a fan uh, of something that uh, uh, you're uh, uh, producing shows about. I, I've, I made a show a couple of years ago that a lot of people did not like. And I'm literally sitting there in the Facebook groups that I've been in for 10 years or more like literally just reading uh, people just destroying uh, something I had spent 18 months working on. Um, but, 
you know, it's funny, there's a great line in Casino Royale where Ava Green asks uh, James Bond, you know, you know, do you hate killing people? And he says, I wouldn't be very good at my job if I did. And that's how you got to be with fans and press. Like, I'm not name dropping, but I do think it's important to give people credit uh, for stuff. I was around Kevin Costner once and, um, you know, he was talking to a friend of mine who was an actor and Kevin said, you want to have a long career? You want to know the secret? Don't read reviews. That makes sense. I mean, I, I did notice as I was uh, Googling you the last couple of days, you were on Twitter at one point, but you're not on Twitter now. Is that right? Is it, have you sort of, I could understand why, like I, I'd like to get off Twitter, but. I, I was on Twitter and I'm still on Twitter, um, but I do not use Twitter uh, for a very, very, very controversial reason. Uh, I, I probably shouldn't even say this um, on air, but I'm going to I'm going to go for it. Um, I can't do three things anymore. Like I it literally was I, I, I couldn't even tell you how many things I've tweeted. What, five? Like. I, I, I got Instagram. I got, I, I, I did Facebook. Then I did Instagram. Then I did Twitter. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm a two, I'm a two social media guy. That's it. Uh, and I just never, I never, I'm still there, uh, but I just haven't used it in probably five years. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. I'm kind of like that with Instagram. I could do Facebook, Twitter to a certain extent, but not Instagram. Maybe it's like an age thing, but all right. So I watched the oh. first episode. Did you say totally? Yeah, I'm sorry, I interrupted. No, no, I about, don't worry, I was about to ramble. Please continue. <laughs> so I watched the first episode, and one of the things that uh, I was like trying to write notes on it, you know, in anticipation of this interview. And there's so much information in that first episode. It's kind of like your style, based on the other documentaries you made. I think there's like a constant flow uh, of information. It's amazing. Because just trying to take notes is is kind of impossible because there's so much information being thrown out there. So I, my thought is like, our question is, how long does it take to put something like this together? How many researchers are out there? And how do you manage uh, that flow of information? It seems it seems like it would take an army. Yeah, it does take an army. Uh, and luckily for us, uh, and this is the greatest gift in the world in the production business, uh, we are a standing army. And what I mean by that is, I mean, I, the people that made this show that came out two days ago, uh, if you looked at the credits, I think it would be at least 75% the same people from Toys That Made Us and everything we've done in between. So we have... Uh, we have a research department that it's like, it's funny, like it's not a department, like it's not a full, like it's never been designated research department, but it's been in continual operation for half a decade, for more than half a decade. So to answer your question from a logistical standpoint, here's what we do. We do about three months of research. That research gets squeezed into an outline. That, so we have one outline for every episode. Then I give notes on those outlines. And while giving notes on the outlines, I pick arcs. Then the arcs will go across the entire series. Um, and then we just keep refining the outlines to get the story that we want to tell uh, to be 
the story that we want to tell. So, and then once that's all done and sort of at the same time, to a certain extent, towards the, towards, it's like I said, we do about three months of research, including the outline building. Um, Somewhere within the last month, we begin casting and casting is the same thing. Like we do not have a casting room or casting department, but we have people that have been helping cast our documentaries for six years. So then they start reaching out, hunting these people down. You know, some are easy to find, some are hard to find. And then as the people we're able to book gets defined, and as we get the outlines locked where we want them to be, then we go shoot. So one thing that sort of amazes me about these documentaries, right, is, and I'll tell you, like, I'm a cynical bastard. Like, I, like, I, don't, even, I don't watch Marvel movies. You know, it's just not my thing. I did a podcast last week where I said Gremlins uh, isn't as good as anyone remembers. People came up to me and objected. Like, I, I, I have a problem. I understand that. So that being said, when the toys that made us and the movies that made us came to Netflix, you know, you're going through, you're scrolling through. And I thought, oh, this must be just based on the image. I was like, oh, this must be like, remember the 80s, those VH1 shows that used to be on with the comedians and the talking heads where they would just kind of delve into nostalgia. So I put it on and then I was just struck by like, Elf in particular, the one on Elf is the one that stands out where I mean, I'm, I'm like, tears are welling up in my eyes by the end of this documentary. So it was anything but an infomercial. And uh, so I guess credit goes to you and your team for, for finding a story uh, within the making of that movie. So now you got Can Star I, Wars. Go ahead. You, Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Because I want to address what you just said. First of all, uh, that is, and I know it's weird to say thank you for causing you to cry. But <laughs> when I hear people say that, what goes through my head is mission accomplished. Like, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to, and you hit the nail on the head. Most people don't. Like, we are hunting for stories that will bring about an emotional reaction from the audience. And during that three months of research, that a tremendous amount of that time is spent looking for these stories that the biggest fan of Elf or someone who's never seen Elf just as a human being watching a story about other human beings um, will solicit an emotional response. So I just wanted to say that, and I appreciate you pointing it out. Yeah, no, no, I, not at all. I, please, I, I tend to blab on, so interrupt at will. But it's not like, it reminds me, I used to go to horror conventions. Well, I still do, but they become, they become expensive and I had kids. <laughs> uh, and I can't drink like I used to. So at a horror convention, like, I, you know, I was never a big fan of, of, of Friday the 13th part whatever you know they were what they were but going to a panel and seeing the cast and crew talk about what they went through making the movie the relationships they have seeing them interact with each other 30 years after this movie i didn't particularly like uh came out there's something completely entertaining and it's like you say you know you you, you there's a human element that you can't help but identify with, especially when they've, when they've made something surprisingly that has lived on and is living on past the people who made it uh, in, in many cases. But with Star Wars, I'm wondering, because so much has been said, and maybe this is a repeat of my earlier question, how difficult was it to sort of find that story that maybe wasn't told before, given the intense uh, scrutiny that, that Star Wars has had since essentially the day it came out? 
It wasn't hard at all uh, because I have a trick um, which I used uh, uh, last year for another show we did. That show was called uh, The Center Seat, 55 Years of Star Trek. And it was a 11 episode series. It was the deepest dive into Star Trek ever. And hopefully Icons on Earth, Star Wars is the deepest dive ever into Star Wars. Um, the way we do these docs is a very, because I'm as big a Trekkie as I am a Star Wars fan. Um, something I've noticed that happens, which I don't know why, but I have been aware of this for about 15 years. Um, for some reason, and it's the same thing with Star Trek and Star Wars, the books written about the making of these movies and TV shows have so much information in them that for whatever reason, doesn't typically get covered in documentaries. So being the fan that I am, I've seen all the documentaries or most of them, if not, I, I probably have seen them all, but so I know what's been covered. And what I find very strange about this topic of the same IP getting the same story told over and over and over again in different documentaries. And I've seen it many times. There's a bunch of He-Man documentaries. They tell the same story mm. over and over again. So I know from the books what has not been on television. So literally, as soon as the show is greenlit, I already know what has never been shown before or what is never talked about before. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, not only were we very lucky to get uh, Marsha Lucas's first on-camera interview ever, um, but, and this is key when you're making a documentary, um, we got her early. Like, so we had like a three month production schedule and we had her like week, uh, I think we had her like week five. And she gave us so much groundbreaking information that we were able to change what we were doing in midstream. And the reason why it's important, the reason why I pointed out the importance of it happening in week five and not week 11 or week 12 is she gave us information we didn't have that I believe to this minute nobody has. And um, has any of that aired yet or is that coming? Oh, yeah. Okay. It, some of it has already. Okay. Most of it is coming in the next episode okay. um, because that's when her involvement really was big in post. Um, but um, because of what she told us, we were able to change a lot or add a lot of questions to all the people we interviewed after her. And that that interview, her it, this happens. It doesn't happen every doc. But it happens. Um, and sometimes you get an interview. One interview will change everything. In the Toys That Made Us Star Wars episode, that lawyer, Jim Kipling, I didn't even think he was going to show up. I mean, no one had heard of the guy. You know, we work with somebody who did a Star Wars documentary before us. He spent like five years making it. He had never even heard of Jim Kipling. Jim Kipling was like this random lawyer in the middle of business affairs at Kenner in the 70s. And we found them because I always know, find the lawyers, find the lawyers, find the lawyers. They're the best people to interview. But because they're lawyers, they don't like to be interviewed. And that guy showed up 
not only did he show up, he bought the contract with him uh, and the, between George Lucas and Kenner. And like it changed the entire show. Is that, so, is that kind of what keeps you coming back to doing these? I mean, obviously, I was looking at like your IMDb alone. Like it just it does. It, it, you haven't stopped working, I think, what, since you like you were born, it looks like. So it makes me think like, well, why, why is this guy working so hard at this point uh, in his life? But is, is it the, is it the thrill of, uh, is it the chase? Cause you kind of sound like a journalist right now when you get, Oh, this has opened up a whole uh, new story. Is it the thrill of the chase that keeps you doing this? No, not at all. It's again, you're asking me a question. I'm going to give you an honest answer, but it's very cheesy. Um, but I just, you know, I want to leave as much behind as I can, you know, like when I'm dead, I'm dead forever. And whatever I produce during my lifetime will live forever. So the more I produce and hopefully of a quality nature, um, the more it's kind of like, you know, I, I want to contribute. So many people did things before I was born that affected me. Um, that's what I wanted to do. So that's, that's why that's part of it. And then the other thing, if I could be honest and if I can turn you into my therapist for a second, let's do it. Um, it's a podcast, right? I, so my mom beat me when I was three. <laughs> uh, no, but I, she did, but that's not what I'm bringing up. Um, but no, um, that was a joke. Okay. All right. Good. Uh, good. Thank you. Like okay, I'm going to call up Mark Marin here. I had to let the air out. Uh, but uh, what do you call it? Um, I had a very kind of unusual career where, I mean, I built everything from scratch and I, you know, I've been doing this for 24 years. I'm telling you, dude, and I am not exaggerating. Uh, my phone did not ring. Like I did not get incoming calls for probably the first 10 years of my career. So almost half of my career, even as of today, I couldn't get a call returned. So I think deep down, I also think I'm making up for lost time in that to get to the point where we can do stuff like this at a regular basis, I think I'm trying to make up for the fact that for the first 10 years, I could barely do anything. That's interesting to hear because, yeah, your background is sort of fascinating. But l let me ask about because, because you know, you have this new Star Wars thing out. So I want to ask about Marsha uh, Lucas. How did that happen? And also, I mean, like she seems like a person. What do the kids say? I have no Fs to give. You know, like she just seems straight talker, I guess, is the more you, traditional. You have no idea. <laughs> I, I can't oh, even imagine. God. Is there going to be a director's cut or an unreleased thing uh, in, in 30 years? Is that in oh, storage? I, it, it was, well, to, I'll answer your questions uh, in order. Um, we, uh, so it's funny when you make shows like this, the biggest person in the world, Sigourney Weaver, easy to book. Getting the second AD from Ghostbusters takes six months. Like you, huh. it, there is no rhyme or reason. Some people are a quick yes. Some people are a six month yes. So we, um, and this is pretty, what I'm about to tell you is pretty common. Uh, we had interviewed somebody that we knew from prior shows, a pretty famous guy in the special effects business. And um, he, uh, after the interview, we were just shooting the shit. And, oh, can I curse? Sure. All right. No curse. I'll say it again. Uh, we were. <laughs> this will go on two podcasts. One. It's OK. It's all right. We, we can do PG-13. Just just please talk. Don't don't be restrained. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you're funny, man. You have a good sense of humor. Uh, and I've uh, you know, I've been around a couple of comedians. I know. I got to ask um, you. So go ahead, go ahead. Uh, we, 
So uh, what do you call it? Um, so you, you met so a special I, effects guy. Yeah. Yeah. And after the interview, and like I said, this happens fairly often. If the people like the interview, people dread interviews because they're usually for a lot of reasons, not that good. So um, so the guy was like, who have you gotten? Who haven't you gotten? And we were like, da, 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 da. but the, the white whale, Marsha Lucas. And he was like, well, who are you talking to? And, you know, we, we gave a couple names. And he was like, no, 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 no. You need to talk to her assistant. So he gave us her info. And then I'll never forget about two. So it took about two weeks of back and forth. And then one morning I wake up, I'm supposed to be going to New York at three o'clock in the afternoon. And I have an email that Marsha confirmed, said she would do the interview and she was available, quote, tomorrow and for the next nine days, close quote. So in this business, don't worry about the nine days. I canceled my entire trip to New York. I mean, this was like 30, 40 meetings that got canceled. Booked a flight to Hawaii, flew to Hawaii, and then the next day did the interview, six-hour interview uh, in her house. Uh, so that's how we got her. And then here's the best way I can describe the interview. Um, six hours. I... When I got into the car to go back to the hotel, it was about an hour drive. In the six-hour interview, I missed about, let's say, seven phone calls hmm. and about, let's say, 250 to 300 emails. My personality is the minute I get in the car, I am calling people back. I'm returning emails. I got probably 50 texts. I sat in that car for an hour, staring out the window, just looking at the at the mountains and the sky. Like I was so blown away, as you put it, with what we learned from Marsha's "no f's allowed" or whatever the expression is, uh, "no f's given." Um, like it was just mind blowing. And again, you have to understand. I am in show business and not a dentist or a businessman in uh, Queens, New York, because of Star Wars. My the reason I, I I wouldn't be doing this without Star Wars. So to to have six hours, I usually learn one or two new things a year about Star Wars if I'm lucky. It was made fifty years ago. How much new stuff could there be? Yeah, yeah. In that six hours with Marsha. I conservatively learned 50 new things. Was there anything after the interview that you wished you had asked her more about or a line of questioning? You're like, ah, I didn't get a follow-up. There... Great question. No, it's a really good question. No, I was prepared. I mean, to a certain extent, I've been prepared my whole life. Uh, second of all, the research team, you know, when we do interviews like this, um, there's a computer with a Zoom open for the research team. So I will do the whole interview. And then when I'm done, I will look at the laptop and be like, what did I miss? And then, um, and then they will all chirp and say what I missed. And then basically they kind of take over the interview for anything that I missed. Uh, and between me and them, yeah, we get a it. check and balance there. That's really interesting. Yeah, we're all about that. I, I'm like, if you say to anybody, do an impression of Brian. Like I guarantee you the word redundancy uh, <laughs> would, be, uh, would be in that impression. How about, I mean, the, the, a theme that at least I pick up on all these documentaries and I don't think I'm a brain surgeon by picking up on it. They're funny. They're breezy. Uh, 
were there any documentaries when you were coming up? I know you said you're from Queens and then I, well, you went to school. Was it the University of Iowa? Is that what I, is that yeah. what I read? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Were there any documentaries that uh, stuck with you or hit you? Like what inspired you, I guess, to say the Adam Egit, uh, Norm MacDonald question from their old podcast? So it, it really, there was only one documentary that I loved in my whole life. By the way, now it's two. It just doubled about a year ago. Uh, and that was King of Kong. Um, that 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 documentary, uh, it was the only documentary I loved. Uh, now, for anybody, I had nothing to do with this. I need to be very clear. I had nothing to do with this. But for anybody who wants to see truly one of the greatest documentaries of all time, you need to watch Class Action Park on HBO. And I don't know you that well. I w- uh, yeah, I know you, it. I went there. You, yeah. You will... You will literally pee in your pants watching it. It is the funniest. I've, it's the only documentary I've seen twice. I, yeah. Anyway, I'm not supposed to be here to talk about other people's shows. Sorry. So no, that's all right. Your question. It, so I wasn't really inspired by any documentary. Well, yes and no. I was anti-inspired by other documentaries. And what I mean by that is I would watch these documentaries about toys that literally from the music to the voiceover to the editing, they treated He-Man like it was the rise and fall of the Third Reich. And it's <laughs> like, why? Like, it's a toy. Like, why, why are we treating He-Man like, uh, you know, a, like a cancer patient going through chemo? Like, this is, this is like completely tonally off. So... But when Toys That Made Us got greenlit, which was, I mean, talk about like random lucky breaks. Um, I said it was the first time in my career uh, I was literally able to do whatever I wanted. Like Netflix was like, yeah, send it when you're ready. Just don't go over budget. I mean, that's barely an exaggeration. I mean, when we started sending rough cuts, I almost expected them to be like, wait, what is this? Like it that's how like Netflix was greenlighting a billion things like. So we had free reign to do whatever we wanted. And um, and I just, by the way, I, I wanted to have fun. I wanted to make joyful um, docs. But I also, because my background at that time was almost entirely comedy, I hired the people I knew. So, and it's funny, our lead editor, this guy named Ben Frost, I mean, I mean, to call him a genius is actually an understatement. And he, we've worked together since toys. That's like, again, that's like six years, uh, which is 97 years in any other profession. Mm. Um, ben told me long after the fact on toys that made us, Ben said, my entire career, I would edit by myself to do my cut and I would send it to the director and they would say, dude, this is the funniest thing I've ever seen. Tone it down. And he said, he goes, Brian, you are the first person ever to say, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. Keep going. So I think that his comedy background, it, on top of, I mean, like I said, the people we hired were all comedy back people. None of these, I didn't hire people that worked on glossy HBO docs, you know? Like we were all like just comedy people and that's who I hired. And that's why that vibe is in our shows. 
And, and, you know, you brought up Netflix and I I do feel like there's, we're in this golden age of documentaries, including the glossy HBO ones, you know, golden age of television again. And it's a lot of it. I mean, there's so many streaming services out there and I subscribe to them all. I'm going to be broken a week because you don't even know you subscribe to them. You forget, sign up for a free thing and then it's charging you and all that. But so Netflix recently though, and actually you said that Netflix played a, a huge part. Took, took seven years to get uh, toys greenlit. They do it, give you free reign. So I imagine that was a huge, a huge thing in your career, gave you, uh, you know, free reign to make what you wanted to make. But there's been these stories like the last couple of weeks, and I know nothing about any of this, but, you know, Netflix, from what I understand, they made $14 trillion when they said they're going to make $14.5 trillion. And now suddenly the sky's falling. But is this since there's so much good stuff out there and you being the business guy, is it sustainable over the long run? Do you think all these streets, is there, are there cracks in the dam? Is it still, are you still having success getting your stuff onto these streaming services? Is it changing at all or what? So it's funny. You, you kind of get it. Like I can tell by the way you phrased the question, like you get it. Like it's not the end of the road for Netflix. Like they, like this is so common in business. Like this is the way capitalism works. You start out with an idea, the idea works. You didn't know it would work. Money comes pouring in and you have a decision to make. Do I say, and by the way, this is true for every business. Companies that make toothpaste, companies that make advanced thermal cameras for imaging. Like this is true for every company that's ever existed. Going back to like General Electric and 3M. You get to a point where you can go left and just kind of keep doing what you're doing, or you can go right and you can continue to scale. Boeing did that with the 747. Like this is not just a show business thing. So Netflix decided they're not going to just goof around and keep licensing stuff from studios because they knew that would end. This is what people don't understand. Netflix knew once the studios saw Netflix working, they would begin to pull their content back and then they'd have nothing. So they decided rather than just make a lot of money for 10 years and then go out of business like Blockbuster, we are going to step on the gas. But the day they stepped on the gas, they knew what happened three weeks ago with their stock price was going to happen. Because at some point, you just can't be driving the car at 140 miles an hour. It'll, it'll blow up. The wheels will pop. Something will go wrong. So every business from Amazon to Facebook to Boeing, everything, you, you got to scale up and then you got to scale back. And how do you know I'm right? Look at HBO. HBO took them about 16 years to become the HBO that we know, which basically happened around the time they did Sopranos. They already existed for 16 years at that point, approximately. Um, Arliss, baby. Don't forget Arliss. Sorry, go ahead. It was a terrible joke. Good show. Good show. Um, And then, so that all happens. And then Netflix comes. Netflix is pounding HBO for about seven years. And now Netflix and Disney are up. Netflix is down. And that's the opposite of the way it's been for 10 years. But that doesn't mean it's not going to flip again. I guarantee you it will. And then it, do you have anything coming down the pike with Netflix at this point? Like, how does that work? Sure. How do you, yeah, okay. absolutely. 
What, what I mean, do you have coming? Do you have another movie? We've already announced, so I can. This is the only thing I can tell you. But yeah. we still. Uh, but we have uh, uh, season two of Down to Earth with Zac Efron. Uh, but there's there's more than that coming. But it's just it's not public yet. That's good to hear. Uh, and I, I got to ask you because yeah, your comedy career. I mean, looking at everybody you worked in, and this isn't a surprise to you, obviously, but maybe to some listeners. It's easier to list the people you haven't been associated with in terms of stand-up comics. It's essentially Kevin Brennan. New York's Kevin Brennan, apparently, you have never worked with. Uh, that I, I've worked. I, that's funny, dude. I have worked with him. Um, oh, what was that like? He's not in a stand-up special. Um, uh, you know, he was what you think he was. I, I loved him, but again, maybe because I'm from New York and maybe because I'm 46. Like, let me put it this way. I don't think a 20-year-old from... Colorado would have liked him. But I met him. I was in my 30s. I'm from New York. He was my kind of guy. That's that's really interesting to hear because uh, I feel the same way. Not that I know him. But uh, so I guess my, my question was, I was looking through like your background and like, I don't know Barry Katz. I've only become familiar with the name Barry Katz from listening to a thousand and one podcasts hosted by stand-up comics such as Kevin Brennan, Mark Marin, Jay Moore, who either there's all Barry Katz is this this legendary yeah. it, it, from my point of view, you know this Woody Allen like what was it Zelig or Broadway Danny Rose type guy who's just out there and has played a part in everything we see in comedy for the last what 20, 30 years. Was yeah. he the guy who gave you your break, or we, how yes. did you get in, like how did you go from the University of Iowa to hey I'm I'm with Barry Katz now. It was, it was, again, as is much more typical than people understand, uh, it was the most random thing in the world. Uh, I had been PAing and I, I was on set doing every job you can think of and low budget things. And then uh, I realized I, had, I was on the wrong path. Like I needed to be involved earlier, not when things were already shooting. So I started interning. I swear to God, man, I was interning for this guy in this big building and I was broke. Like I was broke. I, I, I couldn't make rent. Uh, I was thinking about I was I had resumes out to get a waiting job, you know, waiting tables. And um, I uh, basically uh, was broke interning for this producer. And on this floor, there was a communal copy room. And in the copy room, all the assistants from the different companies got to know each other. One day I'm talking to this guy. He had booked an acting gig and needed to replace himself. I didn't even know what a manager was. Like I knew about agents. I never, I didn't know anything about managers. All I knew was Barry was paying 50 bucks a day cash. And I had to, I, my, I, I needed about like a hundred bucks to make rent. So I, I interviewed with Barry. He hired me. I started working for him. Uh, I paid my rent. I realized I did not want to be a manager. I tried to quit. Can I interrupt you right there, though? Like, yeah. I, I, what was it about being a manager of stand-up comics, I presume? What was the worst it? Job. It's the worst job in the world. Why? And I, 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 I can prove to you how bad it is. Here's how bad it is. One of the most successful managers of all time, a guy who makes, if I had to guess, between eight and $15 million a year, every year. Anytime I see him, anytime I bump into him, 
he looks at me and says, not sometimes, always, he says, man, you're lucky you retired. Every time. It's, it's the worst job. Like, it's easy for me to say you're babysitting. But like, the problem is, like, your, your fate is not in your own hands. So you're literally backing another brain and another heartbeat. And my career, I started with these people usually, almost always before they were famous. So I would try and sign like a normal person. And then when they would become famous, I mean, it was like 80% of the time, like they became a different person. So here you are, you killed yourself making no money for four or five years. Now they're making real money. And all of a sudden your fear goes from, they're going to fire me because I can't get them an opportunity to they're going to fire me because the grass is greener somewhere else, or I didn't get the the M&Ms sorted properly and stuff like that. So, and I will say this to their credit, because I, I want to make sure I'm clear about this. It's not a one-sided thing. So it's easy for a manager, to, an ex-manager like me to say it's the worst job in the world. That's actually not true. The real worst job in the world is being a comedian. There is nothing harder. There is no, I mean, it looks so easy watching a comedian do what they do. It is the hardest thing in the world. So, and also you're getting booed probably for the first two to eight years of your life. Like that traumatizes you. I mean, could you imagine practicing your skill set? Could you imagine the minute, the day you became a reporter, the first year as a reporter, 80% of your interviews said, boo, boo, you stink. What a dumb question. But you keep interviewing people until it goes down and down and down. You're still traumatized from years of abuse. So I never faulted the comedians for reacting to fame or failure the way they did, because if I were in there, I didn't have the courage to be in their shoes. And mm. I'm not saying I had the talent, but even if I did have the talent, I wouldn't have chosen their career path because it's so dangerous and so risky. So, yes. So back to Barry, um, he convinced me because I told you I tried to quit. And he can, he's like, well, why don't you want to be a manager? And I said, I wanted to produce and direct. And I didn't, you know, and he was like, well, you can produce and direct with your clients. And he was absolutely right. I mean, my entire career, I learned tons of, I run the company based on what I learned as a manager, first of all. Second of all, um, our entire library of stand-up specials, which we own, that funds our ability to make documentaries like the one we're talking about. Yeah, that that's just an amazing career. And, uh, I, I, you know, just totally. When's the documentary coming out on that? Or when's your book coming out? Uh, the book, I don't know if I'll write the documentary. Uh, that is certainly someone else's job. Uh, if anyone uh, has the inkling, which I, would, if I had to guess, will not. And let me ask you a couple of clickbait questions here. I'll probably cut them out, but let's just give it a try anyway. Brendan Schaub, comedian, UFC fighter, has uh, engendered some unpopular opinions on, like the whole internet's attacking him for the last couple of weeks. Do you have any advice? I don't know if you're following any of this drama, maybe you're not, but do you have any advice for a guy like Brendan Schaub, a stand-up who's gotten himself in some, not trouble, trouble, but 
fans are angry at him in a mob way. I should probably be embarrassed to admit this, uh, but I do not know the particulars of whatever he's dealing with. But I will say this. This would be the advice I'd give anybody. If he messed up and it's his fault, admit it. Do an interview and admit it. Don't do any caveats. Don't do any BS. Admit it. Look him in the lens. Look him in the eye and say, I messed up. Here's how I messed up. I should have done X. I shouldn't have done Y. And in the future, I will do da 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 da. That's if he thinks he messed up. If he thinks he didn't mess up and he's just getting picked on by the right or the left woke or right wing mafias, mobs, whatever they are, and he didn't think he did anything wrong, he should stand up for himself and fight and push back. Gotcha. And how about uh, Mark Marin? His career as a stand up uh, is just. I don't know. It's it's sort of heartwarming, I guess, because he he you know he has this whole career. I had never heard of him, and then he does this podcast. New York Times writes about it, and the guy's one of the best uh, interviewers out there. How insufferable was he back in the day? Did you have any when he was the old Mark Maron? Was I? I got to be honest with you, man. I only worked with him once directly. We've released a couple of his albums and stuff, but I only worked with him once. It was about thirteen or fourteen years ago. Uh, if I'm being honest, I had heard about his reputation. Uh, I was extremely uh, nervous, not nervous, but I was I was I had my radar on full power, you know, to make sure I was extra buttoned up and didn't do anything wrong, uh, as is typically the case with people who have reputations. He could not have been nicer. Mm. He could not have been more professional. Um, we actually I actually made a mistake and he was very gracious. He didn't care. Like uh, we were about five minutes late picking him up for something. And usually the people with reputation, I, listen, if I'm being honest, I kind of just fibbed a little. I think we we're about 10 minutes late. Uh, and uh, he he didn't care. He was fine. I, I I think I annoyed him a little bit because I was apologizing so much. Uh, so he, he was a, a, a true gem to work with. And like I said, we've released a couple of his albums and stuff. He's always good with the marketing. He's always good with the promotion. Um, he's, he's been an absolute joy to work with. That's good to hear. So my last question, I'll let you go. And thank you so much for taking time uh, to, to, to chat with me. But uh, so you have Marsha Lucas on this documentary. It's about Star Wars. The question, maybe I should have led with, it, led with this, but George Lucas, he looms out there large in, in our pop culture, living legend, Heard anything from him? Any rumblings? How did like, I mean, anything? No, we we reached out to his people. We tried to book them just like we did with Toys That Made Us. And listen, I've been doing press for five years. Uh, like, that's it. I, I still get asked anytime I'm doing anything toy focused. I still get asked the same 12 questions every time. I dread interviews now talking about toys. <laughs> And that's been five years. This guy has been talking about Star Wars for 50 years. You think he wants to keep saying why Chewbacca is named Chewbacca? Why R2-D2 doesn't have arms? Like, I get it. Why would he want to talk about this? If you're asking, have we heard his reaction to what Marsha said? No, we have not. But I'll tell you something funny. Through the most random of random, uh, I actually know that he saw uh, to the Toys That Made Us episode, um, or at least somebody told me that. 
and I know that he enjoyed it. Um, he gave the usual caveat of they got a couple details wrong. <laughs> Which, well, I mean, we weren't there. So, like, you know, we're talking about something not one of us was there for. Uh, it was like four decades ago at that time. But anyway, um, so. But so I if that story is true, which, of course, I have no proof that it is, but I do believe it is because um, I trust the people that told me um, I do know he liked that. That's good to hear. All right, Brian, I want to thank you again. Thank you. For taking time fun. out of your day to do this. I really appreciate it. Same, same. Great interview. Have a great weekend. Thank you, sir. Just 
Dinosaur. Yeah, ride the dinosaur.